why is data alone not enough? How does context take data to the next level? How do companies fully use their equipment in a short amount of time? What economic impact does context have? What are the challenges to unlocking data and how does contextual data help with the digital transformation? This is Inductive Conversations with our host, Paul Scott, speaking with our guests from Blendtech, CEO, Daniel Voigt, and Chief Technical Officer, Keith Wirtz. Hello, and welcome to Inductive Conversations. My name is Paul Scott. Joining me today are two great guests from Blendtec. I have Daniel Voigt, who serves as the CEO, and Keith Wirtz, who's the Chief Technical Officer. Hey, guys, how you doing? Doing great. Thank Thanks for having us. Well, hey, let's uh, start the conversation with you two. Uh, Daniel, uh, could you please give us a little bit of background on yourself? Maybe tell us a little bit about what you do. Great, Daniel Boyd. I'm CEO here at Blendtec. Blendtec, uh, we manufacture, well, design, engineer, manufacture industrial food production equipment. Big stuff, uh, things that make, you know, five, 10,000 uh, pounds per hour, pound batches of machines, making foods for uh, restaurants, school lunches, foods you find in the, in the stores all around the world. Uh, I myself, I'm a, I'm a food scientist, uh, food engineer by background. Um, I've always been interested in cooking, always been uh, interested in, in in feeding people, and uh, this is a, a great way of bringing my interests in uh, uh, technology um, as well as um, food uh, to add value to the world. That's great. Well, hey, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Uh, Keith, same thing. You want you want to go ahead and give us a little intro on you? Certainly. I'm a chemical engineer by background, and I've been in the industry for a long time. Um, I didn't get this face by being. Uh, a kid. And so anyhow, I got into the development of software uh, for, for integration back in the 90s. And I sort of grew up in the times when your leader was, was in the industry developing and moving into Ignition. And uh, actually what I, I did is as an as a integrator, I worked with Blendtec a lot and a number of other companies. And I came in contact with Ignition in 2010 and fell in love with it. And so uh, what happened is I developed my chops on Ignition during that time period. And then Dan and I got together uh, in about 2017, and we recognized an opportunity. And that's what we're going to talk to you a little bit about today. Well, and in fact, Keith and I also go back to about uh, the year, year 2000 is when we did our first uh, project together. We developed and automated and developed a continuous stir-fried egg, or, yeah, stir-fried egg fried rice line that we put in the U.K., uh, it was one of my first projects in the industry. Uh, Keith had, had been at it for a bit longer. It actually kind of serves as a foundation of uh, uh, we, we, we know what it's like to automate equipment with the technology that existed uh, before what we're talking about here today in your products. All right, cool. Well, hey, so we got a background on you two. Could you talk a little bit about Blendtec? Uh, maybe, you know, what, what the company does, uh, you know, what, what it's all about? Sure, absolutely. Well, we were founded by the inventor of the mechanical grape harvester in, uh, in, in 1986. In fact, uh, that's why we're in Sonoma County, was originally the company was going to make uh, winery equipment. Uh, Daryl, the founder, uh, hired a number of folks and they said, hey, Daryl, you know, not everybody drinks, but everybody eats. And he said, that's a good point. And so, you know, we got into industrial mixing, uh, material handling equipment, but we got our break by moving into cooking equipment. We found the opportunity to, to to cook, you know, products like meats and things at scale, 
you know, right around the time in the, in the 90s when people were becoming uh, quite a bit more aware about the risks of, of food safety, the, the concerns that can happen when things like E. coli get into, you know, in, industrial meat uh, flows people can get sick. Cooking processes in, in food are generally considered a critical control point. And, and as a result, it's an, it's an opportunity to help make food safer. As a company, what we do these days is, you know, we design, manufacture, automate, integrate, and start up these industrial um, uh, systems. We mostly focus on, on cooking and cooling. Uh, so it tends to be the types of foods that you would make on the stovetop, not so much the things that you would make in the, in the oven. Uh, or on the grill, so it's it's things like like fillings and 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 soups and sauces. Uh, but there are foods like that that exist in every culture, and and folks need those things all over. So we're you know end to end providing those solutions. Whether somebody wants just an individual machine or a complete line, uh, that's what we do. Awesome. Well, thanks for the background. Appreciate it. Uh, now, when we were talking with you guys a little bit earlier before the podcast here, I heard there was this great story about flying across country and airplanes and data. Um, if you know what I'm talking about here, could you give me a, give the audience a little bit of a background on that story and what's going on there? Sure, sure. And it actually goes back to that story that um, I mentioned that you know Keith and I had done the uh, uh, the system in in Northern England in in, in about 2000. It, it, it was a rice cooker, and uh, you know back back then, I mean, yeah, look, we had email and things. Um, actually, a lot of a lot of problem solving happened with faxes back and forth as well. Um, but it was pretty common for you know uh, you, you to get a phone call and or or, or a fax for that matter and say hey look there's there's a problem with the way the machine is running you know what are we what are we going to do how do how do we fix it in this case it was hey the the rice isn't cooking properly you know we need it running our our customer needs these rice orders filled we got to get it fixed and they said you got four hours to fix it remotely and obviously we didn't have remote connections right but you got four hours to tell us how to fix it. If not, you're getting on an airplane. Well, you know, spoiler alert, we didn't we didn't figure out how to fix it in four hours. Uh, we didn't, you know, we'd ask questions, you know, uh, saying, hey, what's this reading? What's that reading? Tell us what you're seeing. So I get on an airplane. I fly out there. Uh, I walk in there. I see that the, the temperature control is, is not under control because there is simply a cap that's missing on the back of a machine. I put it on, tighten the clamp, sit down. 30 seconds later, the rice is coming out fine. I sat on a bucket there and watched that thing after I just flown halfway across the world to put a clamp on a on a cooker and thought to myself, this is really not how this should go. <laughs> you know, Keith and I have talked about this a lot. I'm sure I called you up and complained about it, Keith, at the moment. But I, I personally, I've been involved in about 700 projects or so. And, you know, we don't have problems on on most of them, but every once in a while something goes wrong. And it would always be the same. I'd hop on an airplane on short notice with a stopwatch, a temperature probe, and a piece of paper. I, I would almost never, if ever, find a problem with the core engineering. It was usually how it was being used. And basic data could have solved that. And it's very hard not to think we need to find a way to identify these issues without creating this drag, this, this delay, this cost for everyone. Yeah, I imagine the actual having to fly uh, slows down things a bit or maybe kind of ties you up a little bit would you say fly or travel in general kind of has a pretty large impact on, on what you guys do or maybe even within your industry well i mean look it's it's an annoyance right but that's not really the issue like i don't mind happening on an airplane and, and getting where you need to go but but the real issue is the economics of it both for the businesses and and not even so much for us but for, for our customers as well as look the global impact if, if you want to look at it from that perspective as well but if your typical machine is running five to 10,000 pounds an hour, 
those products are selling two to three dollars a pound every hour that it's not performing someone's losing ten to thirty thousand dollars in potential revenue per hour you look at best an airplane even if it's in the united states it's going to get you there in a day you know when you consider all the all the travel costs but these types of costs are baked into the overheads of organizations and we all take it for granted that this is this is just the cost of doing business but it doesn't have to be and that omits the environmental impact uh, that that you have from having redundant industrial systems or or the 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 cost of the fuel that that, that brings you to and from it um it's just a cost that we all shouldn't have to bear so, so you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier that that just being aware of how people are doing things or what they're doing, sometimes that's that's sort of the core problem or maybe something that needs to be sort of identified or, or monitored. Can, can you speak a little bit more to, to how contextual data can make an impact? Yeah, I think that's it. Because when, you know, when you're on the when you're on the phone, you know, back in the year 2000, trying to ask why the rice isn't right. You know, you're you're kind of you're, you're you're spot asking questions and and you're trying to figure out. Uh, what could what could it be? You're, you're you're trying to diagnose a patient without seeing it. You know you you don't you don't have the inputs to solve it. Now look, a lot of times you could solve it, but most of the time it took longer than it than it should have, and and then that's where those costs came in. You know the context is you know what what happens when you do arrive when you do fly there. The first thing you say is, can you walk me through what was happening? The next thing you ask is, what changed? It's always the same questions. And, and the thing is, that context is subtracted from the data set. So if you, if you, even if you connect a, a, a system and have it streaming, you have to know the context of who made what decision. What were you trying to do in that moment to determine you know, what a resolution or a change be to improve something in some way? Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to break the fourth wall a little bit. The next question we had on the outline sent to us was, uh, what inspired you to see that, that context is important from data? I kind of feel like you touched upon that already. Did you have more you wanted to kind of elaborate on on there, Dan, about that topic? Yeah, right on. So yeah, look, uh, we the way this kind of came to be, uh, and Keith, you mentioned this. Keith was standing actually here in, in this office, and I was saying, you know, hey, it's really frustrating that that we still haven't found a way to, you know, have the information necessary to solve these problems quicker. In, in today's day and age, why can't we get connected to our machines remotely? And Keith said, well, Keith, what'd you say? <laughs> I said, well, we, we can. It's really not a problem. It's just getting right. people to open up. Right. And so I, I'm, a, I'm a food scientist and food engineer, so I don't know how to, how to do that. Um, I do know what to do with the data once I have it, but I don't necessarily know, uh, know that aspect of it. So we set up something that we called the, um, the B, BR, BRS. Is that what the original term is? Blendtec reporting system. The remote monitoring system, something like that. And, and we were so excited. We, we got all this data coming across and we're like, this is going to solve everything. It didn't. In, in fact, I, it was neat. A few customers uh, initially got, let us get connected. Uh, you know, we, we, we set up that quick framework. But we would we would get the calls uh, with questions and they would say, we're having this problem. We need more throughput or we need this this problem. And, and we're now we're sifting through mountains of data and it just it just didn't have the context. As, as an aside here uh, and another aspect of, of my life, I'm uh, I used to own a CrossFit gym. Uh, I, I, I ran a lot of obstacle horse racing, a lot of Spartan races. 
And I spend a lot of time staring at my, my fitness tracker and uh, this is a Garmin. And uh, so, uh, you know, I set it up to program my, my runs that this morning I did a progression run where every mile it, it beeped and said, you know, time to step up the pace. So it's kind of like automating my workouts. Well, this thing connects to, to uh, a platform called Strava. Strava pulls that data up and it overlays context. In that case, it overlays the GPS data. It overlays segment da segmented data. And I would sit there and I would look at my, my fitness activities and I'd look at my heart rate or my speed and I would think to myself, that looks a lot like a temperature profile on cooking food. How come we don't have data in a context like this? And, you know, I mean, obviously not the same context, but re relevant to, to to what matters in industrial food production. Awesome. All right. Well, so uh, you guys have two platforms and uh, we'll we'll take a look at some of them uh, later today. Um, you have artists and then you have Auto Chef 2.0. What inspired you to make those and what how did Ignition help with that? OK, so what happened is, like Dan said, we needed contextualization and we had a, a, an Auto Chef one from 20 years ago that was written in panel view. And it was sluggish to be exact. And it was also, uh, it, it needed a lot of work. So it was time to come up with something new. And, and it was, a, when we were looking at this, we see the need for contextualized data. You can't give operators the option of running recipes. You need them to run recipes. And when you force them into using recipes, then the data becomes contextualized by the recipe step you're in. And now you have a lot more information. So that was the basic premise for doing AutoChef 2.0. We designed it around S88, which is a batching system uh, ideal. And, and that's how that system was built. And at the same time, now that we had contextualized data, artists came into existence as a way of collecting that data and putting it in context in advanced tool form. In other words, I can't, on the operator floor, the HMI is not the place to put the analytics that you're trying to do. The operator is just trying to make a batch. So that's what they should be doing. But someone else should be looking at the data and using all these powerful tools that exist to actually help them improve their uh, productivy. So that was that was the, the germination point for us. I see. Awesome. I'm glad you explained AutoChef 1.0. I was going to ask. I was curious. Like, hmm, I wonder, wonder what the first iteration was. So that's great. No, thank you. Uh, so okay. So you, you have you have artists. You have AutoChef 2.0. How do those two interact with each other? How do they integrate with each other? Well, okay. So taking Dan's example of the fitness tracker, this is perfect because he he described it, and and as I as he describes it, I can tell you what you have is the first part is a recipe. So you have to have a good system to build a recipe. Dan builds a, a race on his Strava. He builds what he's going to be doing. We build a recipe for how we're going to cook mac and cheese. And then we take that recipe and, and we, we run that recipe like he runs his race. And you see the uh, mac and cheese going through its various steps. And every time a step occurs, something is happening. We're instructing the operator to do stuff add this, do this, or the machine itself is doing things. But because we know what step we're in, we know what's supposed to be happening, uh, what's supposed to be happening. And on top of that, um, if the machine is equipped with load cells or other telemetries, we can see more of what is going on. So we have confirmation that things are happening in the correct time period. And, and there is no divergence from, from the race. So like if Dan stopped to take a break, 
uh, we'd be able to see that. Uh, if an operator doesn't add the, um, the, the ingredient at the right time, we'll see it in the weight and we'll know that this was not done at the right time. And we can actually catch that and report it and say, this wasn't done at the right time or this step took too long. We'll get into this later when we actually uh, do the video portion of this demonstration where um, you can see when the operator is taking too long to do any given step because we're collecting statistical data on every step every time they run this recipe. Just like Dan does the sprint up the hill, we can see on days that he has a good day and we have days that he has a bad day. And we can actually alarm the operator or their supervisor and say, hey, you're, they're having a bad day and they're going a little slow on this step so that the supervisor can head out to the, to the plant and say, what can I do to help you to improve the, the throughput today? And it may be all multitude of things. And we're not worried about that. We're worried about helping him identify the excursion in the process. Okay. Well, hey, can you can you walk us through a little bit how you'd say, say you have like a you know a startup, new company, new organization, whatever? Uh, how can you get them from from that sort of initial state to up a hundred percent capacity um, uh, within a relatively short amount of time? Can you kind of walk us through what that looks like? Yeah, I mean, Dan and I have had a lot of conversations about this recently. We have um, we have a few people in our organization that were saying, "Hey, it takes too long to start up our software." And, and, and in essence, it takes about a week to start up our software to, to really train people on, on how to use it. And when you compare it to really basic software, which is turn on the heat, turn on the agitator, a, a, a regular operator can do that, can learn how to do that in a day. And, and they say, well, we can, get, we can start using this software in a day, yet it takes us a week to start using your software. And the difference is the complexity. The, our, yes, our software is more complex. But the, the major difference is if you run a machine without taking advantage of the automation, you're probably never going to get to more than 50% of the capacity of that machine. What our software does is, yes, it takes us a week to get to 50%, but we keep on growing in efficiency. And it keeps on using all the data that's being collected and guiding them to say, you can be better, you can do this faster if you do these things. And so things that we talk about is our batch comparison tool, which compares two batches side by side to show you differences or where we do the statistical analysis of every step and we can show where there's a large divergence in, in, in uh, proficiency. Uh, we take all that information and, and slowly over a three to six month period, we can build the, the, that machine up to 100% of capacity. Sometimes it happens in a month depends on the customer. Everybody's different, but we can identify where the losses in productivity are, are occurring. We used to think that how fast we heated our machines was critical. It's still important, but what we find is there are a lot of other things that are actually causing uh, batches to be made slowly. And I think Dan could probably chime in on this too. Yeah, I could, and I'd also like to say, you know, on you know, on one end of the spectrum is the you know the, the basic machines where you can where you can start and stop things. And it, it's pretty easy to turn those things on and get them rolling in, in a day or two. You know, on the other end of the spectrum was a, you know, was a trend that um, yeah, I, I actually think is, is re reducing in frequency, which is the, the large uh, custom built architectures, you know, where, where somebody is, 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 is building their own custom recipe engine, which, you know, I've, I've seen pe people do it um, and, and I've seen them be successful over time. But I've also seen some of those systems take months, if not years, uh, to get up to speed as they as they work through the bugs of the of the the 
0.0 rev, right? And get up to the 0 0.2 or 2.0. So, you know, what, what, what we're recognizing and what we've done is that there is a standardizable approach um, for recipe control that is modular and deployable um, that gives you the advantage that you could theoretically get from a custom architecture, but you can get it in fractions of the time. So it's, it's kind of the best of both worlds in that way. But, you know, look, absolutely. I, Keith mentioned that when I, uh, you know, the, the speed in which things heated up when I, when I started in the industry 23, 24 years ago, uh, I started in the technical uh, sales arena and they said, Hey, Dan, we're going to go to trade shows. We're going to talk to people about the, the value of our machines. And I said, great, let's do it. What are the values of the machines? They said, well, they cook, you know, 35, 40% faster than a kettle. Now that's great. Uh, that means they can cook more food. So, you know, look, I diligently went to the shows and look, it's true. It can absolutely heat up 30 to 40% faster than a kettle. I think it's fantastic. But the thing is, in a lot of foods, that doesn't matter because the, the speed in which you're adding things, the, the sampling of the quality, um, quality control. Now, look, I mean, I don't want to walk away from the extra five or six minutes of production you can get from that, but a well-architected recipe control system can get you just as much. So, you know, at, at Buntech, we're, we believe that we're in the business of, of providing capacity. Our, our, our goal is to provide access to, uh, you know, the equipment that, that creates high quality foods at, at, at high speeds. If, if we can find a solution that includes software on, on legacy equipment and, uh, and gets them more production so they don't have to buy another cooker, that's a win. And that's a win from our perspective. Yeah, thanks. Uh, all right, uh, let's let's change things up a little bit. Uh, how do, how have you two, since you have these sort of platforms, you're trying to you know provide to your customers? Uh, how do you approach security, and has Ignition sort of helped with that? Oh well, security is paramount. It's probably the thing I think about more every day than anything else I do. And Ignition was is has been really key to that. Uh, there's there's there various levels of Ignition, and I'm not going to delve too different into our in our in our platform because uh, one of the keys to good security is to not talk about what you're doing too much but um, I, I can tell you that the um, the identity provider platform that you have you, that's now in perspective is extremely important to us um, using using um, key fobs for us we, we use either Google Titans or, or uh, YubiKeys to, to sign in, nobody gets on our, our on our platforms without it. Our customers, no, they don't need that. They can they have their own logins. But for those of us who are developers who have basically the keys to the data, we need to be able to make sure it stays extremely extremely safe. Cannot be touched by anybody. So I think we we really have that nailed. By the way, I'm really excited. Here's a good plug. Uh, I think it's eight point one point one six that just came out. Was that the new one that just came out? The additional additional login that you have in in there now that you can have a supervisor uh, authenticate a step. I'm I'm excited about that. I mean that's going to roll right into our equipment because it's just a nicer way of doing it that we didn't have uh, before. So I'm looking forward to, to putting that in. Yeah, if I can interact with you a little bit, I'm excited with that too. Uh, no, I, I saw that feature. I was like, this is great. We've been wanting something like this and, and you know, perspective for a long time. I'm glad to hear that you're excited about it as well. Yeah, no, it's, I'm sure it's going to help out quite a bit on the security front for sure. Our, our team, um, my other team members got back to me right away. Did you see this? So yeah, we're, we're, we're pumped about that. Um, 
Yeah, security ignition has been really helpful in that area, uh, and and I just couldn't imagine. We we started out with doing um, vision, uh, and we we're trying to do vision in in the cloud, and and of course you can do that, but it's just not as secure. I couldn't secure it, I, and and when when perspective came out. I committed to, you know, talk to Dan and said, I really want to commit to this on our cloud-based platform because we have to have this level of security that's going to come with it and, and a way of tying it down. So that was really important for us to, when, when Perspective came out to be able to shift to that. And the other thing is, in the, in the world of security, is, is MQTT. Uh, MQTT wasn't really ready for prime time on Ignition five years ago. And so we didn't actually go with it for a long time, but we have been doing more and more of it. And it is in much better shape and, and, and very easy to use now. So that is becoming the de facto method for handling a lot of our data transmission. That's awesome. Glad to hear it. That's great. Uh, all right. Uh, so what is uh, Blendtec's business approach and, and what tools have you de developed to, to achieve those goals? I'm trying to figure out how to attack this question here directly because there's a, there's a lot of ways we approach the market. But um, we, we work with the customers from, uh, you know, the, this initial inquiry where they'll call up and they'll say, hey, look, I want to make uh, you know, several thousand pounds per hour of some product. You know, my, it could be a Hey, I, I've got a special mac and cheese, and 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 it's it's really important recipe. We've got this, uh, you know, loyal base, but we need to make a lot more of it. How are we going to do it? Or it could be somebody who wants to bring something new to the market. We work with them from the beginning to actually uh, uh, you know, conceptualize the the, the system, uh, but then also do testing. Here here in Santa Rosa, we have a test and innovation center that we we have uh, demonstration equipment uh, permanently installed connected with these software solutions. And we actually use the software as part of the development to, to uh, you know, define and develop those processes, run the testing, automatically create the test reports uh, that give us all the data we need for scale up. So you know, at the core of this is uh, people need to see it, uh, get that, uh, they get peace of mind through proof of concept. But then that data we get at the testing, we need to be able to, as, as engineers, help them use that information or use that information on their behalf uh, to scale that equipment up and figure out what the throughputs are going to be at full scale so that their business plan comes to fruition with the appropriate cash flows and the appropriate time frame and so on and so forth. So, you know, from there on out, we, uh, we get involved in, in actual system engineering, design of the equipment, the manufacture of the equipment, and then physically go on site in most cases and, and start it up and train them. Uh, and then our equipment is in use for uh, uh, usually decades. Uh, and so we're providing uh, uh, support and, and parts um, uh, on some of the equipment. Some of them have almost no parts at all that need to wear. But um, for the life of, of that equipment um, and, and keeping it rolling. So, yeah, that's that's kind of the approach is help them out from the beginning all the way through that journey. And uh, uh, it's worked out real well. That's great. Uh, kind of keeping in, in theme with that, uh, can, can you talk a little bit about the, the potential growth uh, fr from a startup to a mature manufacturing facility uh, and how different customers are, are served? Sure. Um, uh, well, I think the, the architecture of, of what we're building uh, with the, the AutoShip 2 and Artis uh, is, is probably the, the angle to talk about that. I'm going to talk a little bit about how those businesses tend to grow and evolve and what they have to be able to handle in the market. And then Keith, you can talk about how the architecture we have services that. You know, 
it's it's pretty common uh, for folks to introduce some new product in the market. Um, and of course, you know, look, a lot of new products don't make it in the market. I mean, there's a lot of great product developers out there. And I've heard different statistics ranging from 50% to 90% of new product launches aren't, aren't there within a couple of years. But the, the resilient organizations are adaptable and flexible. And, and what you tend to see is a few of their SKUs do make it through. You know, first they get that regional launch, then they get that national launch, and, and then it grows in scale with, with multiple, um, you know, outlets selling their product. Um, and it moves from, you know, one machine to sometimes 18 or 20 machines. And, and during that period of time, they're also uh, changing their formulations. They're adapting to the tastes of, of, of their customer base because, hey, we like to try new foods. And when we're walking through the stores and we see something a little bit different, we say, hey, I'd like to give that a try. Not a lot of us eat the same thing every day, all of our lives. So it's about flexibility and scalability. And I believe we built an architecture that really allows folks to have the best of both of those worlds. Keith, can you elaborate a little bit upon, upon that uh, structure? Yes. Uh, well, there's, there's actually a few parts to that. First of all, that goes back to having a good recipe builder. So the recipe builder needs to be flexible to handle all the variations that a, that a customer might, might want to do, uh, obviously within the constraints of the machine. The machine can only do certain things. But uh, of course, they can always add, ask us to add on features. We can add on features. And, but the recipe is what, what keeps it all steady. But you need to be able to change recipes. You need to be able to say, oh, I want to do a different recipe today to try out this. And this is where you get into development. And, and we do a lot of help with our customers on developing their recipes to help them produce the product that they want. The, the idea is, though, is you want to be able to track your recipes. And so one of the features we, bought, we built into Artis was as you're building recipes for applications and for testing, we keep an archive of every recipe that's ever been built so that we can go back in time and find out who changed what when. Because that is the, the, the bane of many a company. They don't know. Well, first of all, if you're not you're doing a recipe, you don't know what they're doing. And if you are doing it following a recipe, you don't know who wrote the recipe or when it got edited. And so what we try to do is, is build all that into the system as a, as a tracking of recipes. Now, one of the things that Dan talked about is these customers have a tendency to grow. And if they get a, if they get a, winning, a winning formula for a recipe, they might want to make this product in multiple locations. And so the, and then the question becomes, can you share that recipe among locations, which is another capability that we have, that you can move recipes between locations as needed. That's sort of a more special application that uh, isn't used by a lot of people, but it's something that I think we're going to see a lot more of as time goes by. The larger companies recognizing the ability, the need to be able to move recipes between locations. But just, just at a single location, you know, where we have a customer who might have four, four machines, the fact is you build the recipe for all of them, and then you just move it between the machines as necessary because you know, it, you can move, you can say today we're going to build, the, we're going to run this recipe. And then the operators on all four machines can be pulling off of that recipe and using it simultaneously, not in phase, obviously, but can, can take advantage of it. Plus, we give them the ability to say, at the end of the day, if you're running out of an ingredient, you can scale it down. You say, I want to, um, I, I only have this much material left. I can only make 70% of a batch. Go ahead and tell it. You can only make 70% of a batch. It will respond to that and adjust it to allow you to make just that final batch of the day. 
that way you don't waste ingredients at the end of the day. Uh, okay. So, I mean, you guys have been doing this for a while now. I mean, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the greatest challenges that you faced and sort of how you approach them or overcome them? Yeah, I think I'll, you mind if I field this one, Keith? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, I think we'll both be uh, talking about okay. this one. We both got, we go, we both get to <laughs> yeah. paddle on this one. Uh, you know, I think that here's the, the truth and I think this is true in all industries, but it's super true in the food industry. You can develop technologies faster than you can deploy them because of the entrenchment of existing standards, uh, air quotes. And so, you know, we, we quickly realized after rolling out this, the BRS system and then the, the contextualized approach, we can do this. We can, and we can do some pretty amazing stuff. Um, and our development roadmap has um, some pretty sophisticated things in it um, that we've already experimented with. For example, once you have a recipe partitioned uh, in the way we've, we've set it up, you know which steps are operator driven and which ones are machine driven. You can immediately carve out the relative effect of the operators to the relative effect of the equipment. You also can compare uh, similar categorical steps across different formulations. You also can compare uh, steps across multiple different sites. In fact, it's really not uncommon to get a phone call to say, same piece of equipment, how come I'm getting a different result in facility A versus facility B? Um, well, the contextual data, if they're running on the same framework, can, can provide that. I think that there's, uh, you know, there, there's a confusion that folks have about, uh, you know, uh, legacy branded terminology to say, hey, I always use brand X components or I always use brand Y components and, and believe that that's driving standardization in some meaningful way, you know, which it isn't. And so our focus really uh, is, as an organization is, is making the, uh, the technology accessible and deployable to make sure that we get the, you know, this, you know, IoT empowered cooking technology into the hands of people as a priority, um, rather than trying to make lots of new bells and whistles, um, which we, we've already begun to make them. Um, but, but getting it in use today will already be so impactful. That's the challenge, um, getting over that legacy hurdle. Keith, you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, there's uh, uh, mine are, are two issues. One, uh, the, the, the ongoing issue is the adoption curve of new technology. Of course, we have to go through the, the years that it takes to get people to adopt to technology but you you run the the fear um, you run you're going to run into people selling fear all the time and the fear is uh, well how, we can't let our we can't let you connect to our system from the outside so the 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 old fashioned approach is that we're going to throw a wall around this and we're just not going to let you connect well if you do that this is what you 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 get a, a walled garden approach and you're going to only get certain capabilities in that. And if you're a big food company, I mean, one of the big ones, they can afford to do that because they can build all their tools within in-house and, and they can say, we're not going to let anything get outside. Well, really, they can't because the tools they build are pretty subpar. <laughs> um, they, they just don't have the, the, the insight into the equipment to know what is important. So they build these subpar analytical systems that are just analyzing a trend and they don't really learn anything from it. And so the, so they they don't want to share but and they, and they believe that they have it under control so we never get anywhere. And I I've, I've sort of said they'll catch up eventually. 
I'm targeting more of the mid-size and smaller size companies who don't have that horsepower in in-house, who can benefit from what we're doing, but they have to come to grips with, yes, this is a new world. We're at we're at we're at uh, we're in the world of IoT now, and you have to accept that we're in the world of IoT. And if you can't, well, you're you're we're going to have a, a an issue, and it takes some time. I mean, I spent a lot of time talking to IT people. But actually, they're not too bad. Actually, when you get to talking to IT people, they go, yeah, we can do that. Uh, it's, it's more a problem when you have this entrenched mindset, actually at the OT level, who says, we're not going to let this happen. That usually is where it gets killed. And, and if, if I can convince the IT people to convince the OT people, then we can make, uh, make things happen. That is probably the first big challenge. And the second big challenge is, of course, Dan was alluding to it in a way, and that is availability of uh, parts. Parts right now, i.e. the supply chain disruptions, is makes it difficult. Um, and, and, and what PLC you can get and what VFD you can get. This is not a, an issue for ignition, but it's a certainly ignition for, an issue for us from the hardware point of view, just getting the, getting the stuff we need. Yeah, uh, kind of, kind of touching to the point uh, you were bringing up there, Keith. Uh, I mean, a lot of the times when you're updating like a customer's, you know, whatever you're giving them a new solution or uh, what have you, sometimes you do have to bring in new tech, right? Uh, so, c- can you talk about that? The are there any sort of like hidden costs or, or sort of uh, uh, topics or points you kind of want to bring up uh, in regards to digital transformation? Well, it's a it's a point of consternation. Let me put it this way: it's point of consternation for my software developers. Because I am wanting to push our existing customers forward. And, you know, we're, we're, we're actually moving the platform. And, and, of course, that's rather frustrating. They'd like to leave it alone. But if I, if I leave them alone, then I'm not really moving this whole t- platform forward for, Bl- for Blendtec. Blendtec needs to be, well, Dan, to, to Dan's point, we, we, we need to be ahead, but we can't be too far ahead. But at the same time, I, you know, for instance, a lot of our stuff was done in vision on the HMI side of the business. And there, there's an opportunity now with this new login capability in 8.1.6 that allows us to do things that I think that we really should do. So at some point, we have to have a, a discussion. Do we move forward? And when we move forward, do we bring the existing customers forward with us? And that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's an expense. There's a, certainly an expense to it, and it's the expense is not so much hardware. It's it's mindware. It's you know the the ability to focus on this and 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 bring these people all forward in a very controlled manner, because you can't bring them all forward on day one. It's not like we roll out an Android update and we can throw this out to 50 customers on, on, on a, in a day. You have to roll it forward one at a time. And that takes that takes time, but in the end, the customers end up being benefited by this constantly improving platform, and and of course, they end up liking it. But there's a cost to that, so that's part of the balance. You know, I I think the analogy that I have with respect to the digital transformation is yes, there are there are hidden costs associated with it, um, but there's also an approach that you can take to uh, digitally transform. A legacy enterprise and and you really don't need to look any further than kind of what folks do when they own an older home and they want to start using some of the smart technologies that are used in their home you know you you don't have to rip all the wires out of the wall to automate a couple lights 
um, there's, there's a variety of ways of doing it. You can change out a couple plugs and get a controller hub um, and, and do these things. So uh, I think there's, there's sometimes this, this all or nothing mentality, which really isn't appropriate. You can point by point attack this. And, you know, on the flip side of things, I think folks tend to approach digital transformation saying, hey, look, I've already got the hardware. What I'll just do is I'll connect it, um, look at the data, and I'll, I'll slap a machine learning algorithm on it or something, and, and all of a sudden, whew, insights. And I, I don't know how many times I've been on a call with somebody who's, who's done that. And they, they put data, that flawed data into it and, and produced flawed outputs because they didn't use context to extract non-meaningful data. You know, I, I, if it's possible, it, I think the visual display of our system and our architecture would, would, would provide the perspective, you know, here in this, uh, you know, in this forum uh, to, to show exactly how that uh, can be done with our framework, uh, but you know, also to go back uh, to, to Keith's point about kind of putting the walls up um, around organizations. You know, you go that direction, and uh, although it's possible to to to, to accomplish that on, on your own, you limit the you limit the ability to leverage the learnings of of equipment suppliers, and you end up with those startup timelines that can take longer because you're having to go through the learning curve that others learned, uh, and that's that's. That's the price of isolation, I suppose. But again, it's it's through the demonstration of our technology that you really get it. And so, you know, if it's at all possible, it would be pretty great to share that. <laughs> well, guys, you've been doing great answering my questions. Uh, maybe I kind of want to open the floor a little bit. Uh, is there anything you wanted to share with our audience? I was thinking about uh, what Dan was talking about, the machine learning algorithm and also a few other things. And one of the things that uh, comes out of this type of data is the ability to do digital twins. Uh, we, we now, with all this data that we're forming, and digital twins comes it's sort of a hot term that's been around for a few years now. Um, it really is a real thing because we, we now have all this data on a customer's application. We can build them a, t a digital twin that will predict in advance how long a recipe should take to run. So they, if they build a recipe, we should be able to come back to them. I haven't done it yet, but we, we can do it. This is one of those things that Dan has talked about. You know, I don't want to get too far ahead, but if someone out there is saying, well, I'd really like to know how long this recipe is going to take to do, just start using this system and it should be able to predict for you how long this recipe will take to uh, produce. Well, and, and it needed the, the contextualized steps in order to make that feasible. So it has to be built in the way where, where essentially the, the activities are unitized um, so that they can be summed relative to the, the variability or productivity that each provides on its own. I mean, the, the correlation of what this would look like is when you, when you build the recipe on our, on our, on, on our cloud platform, um, uh, it, it would predict the time to uh, complete it. Uh, we, we have all the math worked out to do this. Um, it's, it's all in place. And it would look a little like, uh, you know, I grab my phone. I set here, say I want to drive to SFO. And then it says, you know, if I go down Golden Gate, it's uh, an hour, an hour and 20, but I got to pay a toll. Maybe I go around the other way and it's two hours, but I don't have to pay the toll and I can click it and see the difference. So you, you could reconfigure your, your recipes before using them and predict the, the, the performance based on the, the legacy performance of your equipment. I, either the theoretical capability of the equipment, which would be like without traffic or with traffic, 
which is the uh, the empirical performance of your team. Both of those are feasible. And then the delta between those says a lot about your capability as an organization and tells you what the the growth potential of your company is. So, and another thing that, that I think is important is, you know, we talk about this AutoChef too on our Blendtec equipment, but what we're realizing is that there's a, there's a huge opportunity here. This is good, really well-developed software. And it, it could be used, well, not only on retrofitting some of our old AutoChef 1 systems, which I would love to do, um, but I, I think the, the bigger application is there are other people who are running recipes out there who are running with antiquated recipe systems or don't even know that they need recipes. And we can, we can apply this technology to that. I mean, there are our competitors are out there that we could probably automate the heck out of them. And they would be, you know, we don't want to help them sell their, their kettles. But then again, we do want to help our customers. And so we're all about helping our customers improve capacity. So we're, we're talking to them about these things. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up here. Uh, Dan, Keith, thank you very much for joining us today and, and sort of sharing a bit of what you guys have been working on here. It's fantastic. This, is, this seems like a great solution. Uh, uh, so thanks again for, for coming on here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Hey, listeners, this is a quick reminder to subscribe to our podcast if you're enjoying the conversations. Also, if you have a topic or a question you'd like us to cover, or if you're interested in being a guest on a future episode, then please send your inquiries to podcast at inductiveautomation.com.